Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello and welcome to The Tonight Show. Cervical check. Dr. Gabriel Scali says there's serious work to be done to create a policy of open disclosure in our healthcare system. And later in the programme, as protests over the housing of asylum seekers in Dublin's East Wall have been suspended, the Thornista has said that no community can have a veto about who lives there. As always, join the conversation online with your comments and your questions on the hashtag TonightVMTV. Back in 2018, Dr. Gabriel Scali conducted an, an extensive inquiry into the cervical check screening program in which he said that there were many indications that the program was, in his words, doomed to fail at some point. Now, four years later, his final review of the implementation of his inquiry has said there has been substantial progress achieved since his initial report, but there are areas in which there remains some serious work to be done. Well, I'm delighted to welcome Dr. Scally to the studio tonight. You're very welcome Thank along you. to the programme, um, Dr. Scally. This is your final report card. Um, four years ago, you said that 50 things need to change. Well, you had 50 recommendations and, and more actions again um, that needed to happen. What was revealed in the aftermath of Vicky Phelan's court case was that Ireland had a cervical screening programme that was deeply flawed. Indeed. In your opinion, at this point, is this screening programme able to be trusted by the women of Ireland? You're quite right. It was flawed at the time, and particularly the issue of laboratories where women's slides were being sent across the world, really, everywhere from Manchester to Honolulu. They'd gone to 16 different laboratories that no one knew about in Ireland, for most of them. And some of those were unsatisfactory laboratories. Now... That's changed. And all of the slides of Irish women, the samples of Irish women, go to one laboratory, and that's the Quest Laboratory in New Jersey. And they're dealt with uh, expertly and well. And uh, a team of people working for me, uh, including wonderful experts in, in cytopathology, went to look at that laboratory and to see not just how good it was, but how well the cervical check programme here was doing the quality assurance that they should do with a laboratory, and we found it very satisfactory. So I think Irish women can be sure at the moment that their slides are going to a very well-organised, well-run uh, laboratory that's providing a good service to the women of Ireland. But Gabriel, do you think this is an ideal situation in Ireland in 2022, that we're exporting these critical checks? The most important thing is that they're done and done well. But what is the plan? Uh, well, the plan is that the COM will uh, do the slides, really. Um, and, I mean, there's several aspects to it. The number of slides that need to be done has decreased dramatically because 
a new test has been brought in, and that's one of the other great achievements that has been done. The first test now that's done on a sample is a test for the presence of the HPV virus. The HPV virus causes cervical cancer. So that test is done first, and it's only if it shows traces of the virus, then it goes on to a slide and is looked at down a microscope. So the number of slides has been reduced, and that reduces the margin of error as well, the number of errors that can take place. So uh, it's reduced the number of slides, so they can all be done in one place, and there's a plan afoot to return them to Ireland and do them in the Coombe. Now, the Coombe isn't ready to do that. They haven't done any screening in the last couple of years, and they've work to do, and they have got to get the quality absolutely right. And my final point about that is that they need a backup. We can't afford just to put all our eggs in one basket. If the Coombe, for any reason, can't do the work, then we need a backup. OK, that's one of your recommendations. And you do say that substantial progress has been made, but the state has lagged in implementing some of the key changes that you feel are needed. Your point to a lack of open disclosure yes. and around duty of candour, saying all health professionals need to be open and honest when a mistake is made. When you have, say, the Irish Medical Board saying it's at the discretion of doctors, uh, how do you change that? Well, you change it very simply. The Irish Medical Council in its guidance said that doctors should practice open disclosure, and I would like them to change it to doctors must practice open disclosure. Is it as simple as that? Uh, and is, that will compel them to do it? That will compel them to do it, or at least if they don't do it, they'll have to argue back, have they got good reasons? And there are some reasons why you don't do, can't do open disclosure if a patient is unconscious or doesn't have the capacity to understand that there's been an error and they need it explained to them. There are, but I, the basic principle is that we should have honest, open uh, communication between doctor and patient, it, telling the truth to patients. And, you know, Vicky Phelan died without feeling she ever got to the truth about her case. And that was one of the things that kept her going, the, the necessity of making sure that people get the truth. And telling doctors and other health professionals telling the truth should be as natural as breathing. And it's far from it at the moment. It is far from it at the moment, as you say. And there is pushback to these proposed changes. Like the health service executive has raised concerns about this mandatory open disclosure to screening services, saying it could have negative consequences. How do you counter that? And like, what sort of challenges do you feel politicians are going to face in getting these laws through and, and yes. implementing this change that you say is necessary? It's and as you say, that Vicky Phelan and all the campaigners so desperately want. There is work to be done. Of that, there is no doubt. For example, I, I was amazed to find that there is actually a prohibition in law. A prohibition in law, patients are not permitted by law to complain about the clinical care that they get to the health service. And it's in the, uh, HS, it's in the legislation and it's in the HSE code uh, of complaining. You cannot complain about the exercise of clinical skills. That has to be changed. And we need it. And what, what that failure to recognise that people have a right to the truth and a right to ask for an explanation if they think something's gone wrong, and be right told something's gone wrong, is we end up with cases, if people have the money to bring a case, we end up in the High Court and we end up with uh, spending a large amount of money in the, the whole medical legal complex, mm -hmm. the, the solicitors, uh, courts, barristers, uh, medical expert opinions, all of that money, um, to a large extent, wasted because we know that if you do three things for patients, they're very unlikely to go to litigation. One is tell them the truth 
absolute truth, honesty and, and candor. The second thing is, if something did go wrong, make an apology. Say you're sorry and be genuinely sorry about it. And it should come from someone who was actually involved. And the third thing is, and uh, patients and families, when things go wrong, are very altruistic. One of their great wishes is that it never happens to anyone else. So say how you're going to try and make sure that it doesn't happen to anyone else. If you do those three things, it is uh, the, the number of people who have to resort to uh, litigation decreases dramatically. And we know that from other parts of the world. Yeah, you're talking about those three changes, and I think yes. they are changes that everyone in this country would support. But there are some within the medical profession that would still be fighting those sorts of changes. And I'm thinking of the campaigners and the 221 Plus group, uh, who, in the words, uh, as you say, of one woman, um, she told you, I've been treated like a leper when they have gone to consultants yes. to be treated because they've known about their background in campaigning around the cervical check scandal. So with that culture in place, how are you confident that, that there will be that change? There will be a change. This change will happen. The question is, is it going to happen slowly or is it going to happen quickly? I want it to happen quickly. I want it to benefit people now. It's going to change, firstly, because the workforce is changing. Uh, the majority of people coming out of medical school as doctors are women now, and I think women will change it over time. Uh, so it, it is going to, and, and, and members of the public now recognise that they've got a right to the truth and want to be told the truth and are finding their voice. The problem is lots of people don't have that voice and we need to change it for everyone. But it will change and it can change. And yes, some of the treatment of, of uh, the 221 plus women is still unacceptable, just as the comments that were some of the horrible things that were said to them when, they're, uh, when it was eventually disclosed to them that, that, that there was a discordance in their slides. So uh, as you're saying, you're pointing to speed now and how quickly change can come about. Do you think this proposed legislation is a fix? It's not a fix for everything. It's, a, it's just one part of the process. At, at the moment, the piece of legislation, the patient safety bill, will be uh, compelling, making mandatory open disclosure, but only in a very, very serious instance on the face of the bill. And the list on the face of the bill of the incidents when it will be mandatory is very limited. And really, uh, it only applies to people who've died through medical ne negligence at the moment. But the bill uh, makes it, leaves it open for the minister to add other instances where there has to be open to disclosure. And your message to him on that is what tonight? Uh, that we need not just mandatory open disclosure and, and that very legalistic framework, but we do need a proper system put in place uh, where patients can raise concerns and expect uh, the health service and expect health professionals to tell them the truth. It, it's, it's all of these things have to happen. There is no one fix and it requires a lot more effort and it requires a substantial movement, I think, by the professional bodies as well. Because at the moment, uh, as we discussed earlier, the professional regulatory bodies uh, are, are, are saying, well, open disclosure is optional if you have to do it at all. By the sounds of what you're saying, there is still an awful lot of work to be done, Dr Scally. This is your final intervention, is it? I mean, this is your final report now. Do you think your expertise will be needed again or do you consider it now job done? Uh, well, as far as I'm concerned, I, I hope it's job done. I mean, there's a lot of work to be done, but uh, it, it shouldn't be by me anyway. We shouldn't be relying on an external expert to tell you this stuff. It's plain 
and simple. Give people their rights. Give them the information. It's their bodies. It's their information. And we've got to put that principle to work in the health service, in the professional bodies. And we've got to stop thinking that the High Court is the answer to all our ills. OK, Dr Gabriel Scali, thank you for joining us on the programme tonight. Now, coming up after the break, patient advocate Stephen Teep gives his reaction to the Scali report and we look at the political hurdles that remain. Stay with us. Welcome back for more analysis and discussion on the final Scali review. I'm joined by Fine Gael Senator Barry Ward, Labour Party Senator Marie Sherlock, Executive Editor with the Daily Mail Group John Lee and Clinical Editor of the Medical Independent Priscilla Lynch. Uh, but first, a little earlier on, I spoke to patient advocate Stephen Teep and I began by asking him if he believes that four years on from the Scali report, we're in a different place now. Yeah, four years when you say it like that is a is a very long time for sure. And uh, for for the likes of uh, myself and Lorraine Walsh, who've been sitting at all of these steering committees watching and pushing this uh, Dr. Gabriel Scali's implementation plan along, um, you know, we're actually finally at a stage where he now can report substantial progress, which is, um, I suppose, in one way, a relief. But I think what's more important to that is that the screening program is, as he goes on to say, is substantially better today than it was in 2018. And if you remember back in 2018, when uh, Dr. Gabriel Scali gave his original report, it was a screening program doomed to fail. So we certainly are um, in a more positive position today uh, after four years. But uh, I suppose like you've highlighted, um, in Dr. Gabriel Sky's report, obviously more work does still need to be done and some areas have still not been touched. And there are a lot of political promises to deliver. It's essentially now over to the politicians, would you say, um, Stephen? Have you faith in them to carry through on their, on their message? We've heard from the Taoiseach, we've heard from the Minister for Health, that we will see this bill come about. It will promote patient safety and, all importantly, this open disclosure, which Vicky Phelan and yourself and all the other campaigners have really been pushing for ever since this scandal emerged. Do I have faith in them? No, I do not. Um, in the words of Vicky Phelan, we need to see action, and action is not what we have seen. This patient safety bill has been spoken about now since 2019. It's actually been spoken about the last time Leo Varadkar was Taoiseach, and he's due to take it over again next month, and it still hasn't progressed in any shape or form. It's currently been gathering dust since March of this year, hasn't progressed in any shape or form. There are words used last week in the doll about promising to get this through. Again, it was just more sound. And of course, it was only said on the back of uh, the passing of, you know, Ficky Phelan last week. So it's time to see action. It's very important. Mandatory open disclosure, of course, was a big part of uh, the backbone of the scandal also was one element of it. It's certainly a piece that we've been pushing since day one. Uh, it is down to the politicians, like you said, of course, uh, this is the area that we need them to push this through. We really need to see a commitment. We really need to see a deadline on when this is all going to be implemented. Uh, as I said, it's going on since 2019 and um, it's really time to get moving with this. And of course, Stephen, it's all about clinicians and you know medical professionals when they go wrong, putting their hands up 
saying sorry. Um, does that go beyond legislation, do you think? And do you think the appetite is there within the health system for individuals to, to hold up their hands um, and, and for, you know, clinicians within the HSE, when things do go wrong, to say, yes, we made a mistake and we're sorry? It's unfortunate that we actually do need a policy like this in place to actually get um, honesty into the system when something does go wrong. And I think we've seen it in other areas of healthcare as well. Uh, there's an absolute need and a necessity for a shift in the culture. And this is a culture uh, problem within our um, healthcare system. Some of that is being propped up for sure by a minority within it what's about a minority that are at a senior level in there. People have referred to the culture of, um, do you know, the culture of change of silencing people, um, ignoring the failings um, of the past. And this is something that we have uh, had issues with in regard to the cervical check debacle, uh, the lack of uh, taking responsibility of what's gone on in the past with the failings in order to fix them and move forward. And this is what's or preventing trust in the system currently, mm. this lack of acknowledgement. So patient safety bill, it protects everybody. It protects the patient, of course, but it also protects the medical uh, professional also. Um, if they're ever facing a situation where they don't know whether to disclose or not, they will be able to refer to this document as well. It protects everybody. But of course, it puts the patient first in the centre of everything and um, honesty and trust and everything will be built on the back of it. OK, Stephen, thank you very much for joining us tonight and best, best wishes to you and your sons, Noah and Oscar. We know that this year marks five years since your wife Irene's death and we're very mindful of that and of your strength in coming forward and talking, speaking up as a campaigner. Um, so we do appreciate you being on the show tonight. Thank you. Well, Stephen Teep speaking with me earlier. Um, we're going to join our panel now on, on this. You're all very welcome along to the programme. Priscilla Lynch, to come to you first. We had um, Gabriel Scali's final uh, progress report, if you like, looking back on what he said needs to be done and how far we've, we've got with all of this. And campaigners earlier, and I think Stephen pointed to it as well, saying, look, there is a frustration that there's still a way to go here. Um, but Gabriel Scali saying, well, at least have faith in the screening system that's in place now. Yeah, that's right. He said there has been significant improvements, as we heard earlier, and that it is a screening programme that women can have confidence and trust in now. So there has been a big change really since 2018. Um, I thought it was very interesting in his report that he said uh, he kind of pointed out that there seems to be in a bit of a culture of denial, as Stephen would have noted there, um, that four years later, that was there really anything wrong with the screening programme. And he said very strongly in his report that it's entirely reprehensible um, to claim that cervical check was as good as any other screening programme at the time, that it was deeply flawed. But there have been significant improvements since and uh, I suppose it is frustrating for those who are very much involved in this program. It's a very emotional, or sorry, um, it's a very emotional topic for them. And obviously, over four years later, to still see some outstanding and major uh, recommendations that still have to be implemented. Uh, Dr. Scally did acknowledge that obviously the COVID-19 pandemic has had a negative impact on some of the rollout, but change is very difficult, particularly in the medical um, sector. We've seen that. Uh, we know there's a lot of delayed legislation, such as the Patient Safety Bill. But it's not the only long, long delayed bill. I mean, if you look at surrogacy 
see in IVF. I mean, there's various mental health changes as well. Change is very slow. It's mm. very painful. Now, mandatory disclosure, uh, open disclosure, that is a thorny subject and it has been difficult for the medical profession. It has been official HSE policy since 2019 to have open disclosure with patients um, in so far as possible. And the HSE is training staff mm. on that. But again, not all staff are trained. So I think it is frustrating. I think the key to the whole cervical check controversy was poor communication. And that again, you know, in these recommendations, just about open communication with patients and being honest and actually admitting that there has been faults. We have a very adversarial medical legal system mm -hmm. in Ireland still. And we don't actually have enough independent bodies really having oversight on healthcare services, as Dr. Scally noted too. Um, yeah, and four years on, there is still, it seems, a, a long way to go. Um, you know, on this Barry Ward, you know, the patient safety bill has been knocking around since 2019. We heard from Stephen there saying he has no faith in the politicians because since March of this year, very little has been done, very little progression has been made. And yet we did have these promises in the wake of Vicky Phelan's death. We heard from the Taoiseach, we will have this, you know, legislation through, we'll, we'll push for it at the end of the year. Um, but, you know, there is likely to be pushback. And would you say there are likely to be more delays with this? Well, firstly, I understand Stephen's frustration. Anybody who has been involved in this process must be frustrated. Five of the 58 recommendations made by Gabriel Scully relate to the Patient Safety Bill, and they're the five where he isn't satisfied with progress. So it's a legitimate criticism to make. Now, the bill has passed uh, through committee stage in the Dáil. It's scheduled to be finalised in the Dáil next month. We're looking forward to getting it in the Shannon as well and getting it made into law. Um, but I do understand the frustration, but... but Progress is being made and uh, we hope that that will be done before Christmas. Yeah, interesting, like from a political point of view, um, that, you know, this, this bill is there, there are recommendations within it, it's all about this open disclosure, but there's a big cultural change as well needed, Marie, within, you know, the, the healthcare sector um, and the system for doctors to, to, you know, to put their hands up, clinicians to put their hands up, admit when they're wrong and feel safe in doing so and also for the patient to feel like, yes, I'm getting the answers, you know, and when I ask the questions, I'm getting access to my file, I'm getting the apology, I'm getting the full story. And I think it's important to say that, you know, as I understand it at the moment, open disclosure within the health system is on the basis of that doctors shall uh, make open disclosures as opposed to should. And we heard Gabriel Scali using the word must make mm. open disclosures. But I think to go back to the point about this bill and, you know, again, we've heard all these commitments about trying to speed it through both the, the Dáil and Shannon now. There's a real question about whether it's fit for purpose. Twelve of the 13 conditions stipulated for open disclosure means that a person has to be dead before, uh, or, uh, before there can be open disclosure. Like, you know, I understand that Vicky Phelan wouldn't have qualified um, for, uh, you know, open disclosure in her own particular case if this current bill is to go through. So I think there's very serious concerns and difficulties with the bill as it currently stands at the moment. And I think, you know, we need to have it fit for purpose. We need to make sure that it works for patients and for clinicians. And that's the first critical step before you even can go next or near culture. Because if you don't have the framework right, then you can be, uh, you know, really sure that we're not going to have an open and transparent system within our health service in the years to come. John, isn't that the problem, that there are limits to what this bill can achieve? Um, you know, that's what Marie is saying, that's what others are saying, and campaigners are saying it as well, that, you know, you're looking at extreme circumstances where there may be a, a open disclosure, that it's not really going to lead to this open, transparent system that everyone would wish to have. Oh, I think you're 100% right that the bill is not going to have, have, a, have a huge effect 
I was struck. So what's the point in it? I mean, that's... Well, that. I, I was struck by um, <laughs> what Dr. Scali said today that was, uh, make sure I get it right. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. An over-reliance on the judicial system struck him. He used words like astounded and um, shocked about various aspects of this. If you cast your mind back over 12 years mm-hmm. to when the, the IMF and the EU came in here, one of the first opening lines in their report, as they gave us billions of quid to bail out our ba- bail, um, banking system, was they were stunned at the amount of, uh, at the the recourse to the judicial system in the, in, in this country. I think uh, Barry, you're a, you're a practicing ba- barrister. We have a number of practicing barristers in the in in, in the Shannon and in Dáil Éireann, and are they going to be motivated to overhaul our system? overhaul the okay. only recourse that there is to anyone in this country, it seems, um, if, if they have a medical disaster or anything else. Uh, Let's to go ask to the Barry. And Barry. not only was, was Gabriel Scali yeah. astounded, I, I'm, still, I'm astounded that, that women will still have to go to the courts to get any access to the reasons why they've had medical uh, failures in their lives. Barry, is there a reason, you know, is there an agenda there at the end of the day? You know, there are a lot of people with legal backgrounds with maybe agendas there no. that it suits, I, I it, suits it, it, it suits to have this court system of, in first place. First of all, cases only get to court when litigants decide to bring them to court. Lawyers only deal with them when they get to court. But there's no when, option for many uh, of well, many the, people. The point, I, don't, the I, 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 I would say, I would suggest <laughs> that many of the families who are going through the courts yeah. in order to get the but, HSE but, to say sorry so in order to get financial support. I was answering the point you were making supports. about there being an agenda. There isn't an agenda and there isn't a basis for saying that. Um, the reality is that what the bill is proposing to do is to echo what Gabriel Scali said in his report about a duty of candour. Now, I unfortunately had a member of my immediate family going into hospital recently, and so I went through this experience and I realised just how vulnerable patients can be when they're in hospital, mm. particularly when they're at low ebb, uh, they might be in a lot of pain or very uncomfortable. The value of having patient advocates there, but also the fact that a patient doesn't have a right to see their medical file, to my mind, is extraordinary. We talk about data protection in all other walks of life, and yet, as a patient, you're not entitled to access to that. Um, and will the, the laws change well, that? The, yeah, exactly. And the, and the patient safety bill will also put in place well, a Barry, duty. Just let me finish a second, John. Uh, uh, well, it was only last week, but the, the, but the, the point it is... Um, well, so, yeah, 
Let me just finish the point that I'm making. The, the, um, the patient safety bill will also place a duty on doctors in relation to certain mistakes or certain issues that have arisen that they will actually have a duty to inform okay. the patient. That's but tremendously But actually, on that, on that point, isn't it true, and it's something, yeah. again, that Gabriel was saying, that you can't actually complain to the HSE? Well, yeah, Gabriel said that. You can't complain to the HSE. You can certainly complain to hospitals and to doctors. You can raise complaints. There may not be a... But is a, that not a, Orwellian, what, that you cannot... There is no recourse for anybody to... to I, I'm, not, I'm not in favour. I, I don't disagree with you, John. It's tremendously that's, frustrating. That's, and the, 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 we still have in hospitals a regime where people aren't, aren't allowed in because of COVID measures, which mm. I find is extraordinary, which again cuts patients right. off from the opportunity to speak to people who know them best and might be able to communicate a problem to nurses and doctors who are dealing with them. Um, Priscilla, uh, talk to us, I suppose, about recourse and where patients can make complaints. The system, as it stands at the moment, seems to be incredibly limited. It's one of the failings that uh, Gabriel Scali sees it at the moment that if there is something you know where do you go with it okay. uh, who's answerable patients can and do complain directly to their healthcare providers and to the HSC oh. there is a complaints officer and what uh, happens and there, is, there um well the HSC follows up on complaints but when in relation specifically to clinical care complaints can be made to the medical council and to the nursing council and to the pharmacy council as well about those clinicians and um, that can be bought by either their uh, employers or by individual patients and I think that's one of the issues with open disclosure there's a, a big cultural change there and clinicians can be afraid of the consequences of open disclosure and they've also pointed out what happens if they've been working for 20 for 36 hours? What happens if they're understaffed? What happens if the equipment has been out of date by five years and it's not their fault that it's actually not working, that it wasn't replaced? Who's responsible for that? In the UK and other countries, but does that mean trust that can you be say, fined. Does that mean that you... You don't say anything, you don't give the patients the answers, you don't have that conversation no, and I say, this is yeah. why it went wrong for that you. That culture is changing, but it has been slow, but the education is coming out there. So it's not just even the legislation. That is a key part of it, obviously, to make it, you know, a duty, you know, beyond a duty. But there is a change that we really need across the healthcare system to move away from the adversarial system to, yeah. as I said, open disclosure should actually reduce the amount of cases that are taken, because a lot right. of the time patients just want answers. Finally, you get the sense where this can't be done overnight. No, no, of course it can't. And, and can I just say very briefly, like the other major part of the report today, um, and, and Gabriel Scali referenced it earlier, is that we have no backup now with regards to cervical screening. We're reliant on just w one laboratory in the United States for the vast majority of the screening. There is a, and no audit, and, 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 and this hasn't really come out in the coverage today, mm. but no audits have taken place since uh, Gabriel Scali's original report. Now, there's... A, a reason for that, and 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 and, and Gabriel Scali, you know, alludes to it in the report. It's because of our reliance. We've put all our eggs in the one basket mm. of, of of one screening uh, of one laboratory in the United States, and we have failed to develop any services here in this they country. We have we have a building, we have a building, but we have no staff recruitment and, and hasn't started, and no equipment. But, but how long have we been talking about it, Barry? Well, absolutely, but, but you know, Marie, no, you know that COVID interrupted progress. Ah, but no, the but that allocation is there; they're developing the capacity. Said COVID yeah. shouldn't be stopping patients now, going into hospitals. Now it shouldn't. But, but, now that's what I'm saying now. But should but it have point prevented is, progress it, in it, such a key area when lives are at stake? No, <laughs> sorry, hang on. The reason it interrupted was because the measures couldn't be put in place. Gabriel Scali said this himself. He said the measures being put in place in the coom, they haven't yet got the capacity because they haven't carried out tests for a year. And you need to have people who are doing it all the time, who know what to look for, are not going to make mistakes. And that capacity uh, takes uh, time uh, to happen? The uh, allocation is there. But sorry, Marie, you said a moment ago that no progress has been made. That's not correct is there and it's lying empty and the key thing is and if that laboratory because of the litigation skills. that's going on right. if that laboratory pulled out
out in the morning. Ireland okay. had no cervical screening services because of the failure to plan in this country. OK, we'll have to leave it there. My thanks um, to Priscilla, who joined us. The rest of the panel will be staying on with me after the break. Tonight's protest over the housing of migrants in East Wall is suspended as Minister Roderick O'Gorman agrees to meet with locals. Stay with us. Welcome back. No community can have a veto about who lives there, the Thonishtha Leov Radkar said earlier today as protesters in the East Wall area of Dublin said they would end their demonstrations against the housing of asylum seekers in a former office building after Children's Minister Roderick O'Gorman agreed to meet with locals. Well, for more on this, Barry Ward, Marie Sherlock and John Lee have stayed on with me and also joining the panel is Lucky Kambule, co-founder of the Movement of Asylum Seekers in Ireland and Councillor Janet Horner from the Green Party. You're very welcome along to the programme tonight. Um, to come to you first, Janet, as a local councillor, this whole story has come to public prominence because of the numbers gathering um, at the protest and their message, which is sparking controversy, what have you seen and heard from the community in recent days? I think there's been, like, the, the talk over the last number of days has been obviously these protests which have captured the national attention in a huge way. I think the community on the ground, the majority of people there do not feel represented by these protests. The North Inner City is a constituency where 40% of people are born outside of Ireland. It is one of the most diverse constituencies in the country. People who live there, people who have lived there their whole lives, know that it is a place where people mix well together from across a wide diversity of backgrounds and we are a richer, stronger community for the diversity. But that's not what we're seeing on the streets, is it? My, I don't feel that the, the protests represent the majority of the community. And I think that it is something that a lot of people who live there feel really disappointed to see their community represented in that way at the moment because these protests have captured the spotlight and it is one of the first times I think that you will see you will have seen East Wall in the in the glo in the national media. So who's um, in the mix there? You're saying people in the local community that you know it's a very diverse community and 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 a welcoming one. So who's in the mix in that crowd? Is there are there far right groups joining it? Are there people who are hijacking? You know, are there genuine concerns there? What's actually happening? Do you believe? I think there is. Um, it is a mixture, and it's very hard to define exactly. Um, you know, it is nuanced and it is quite a complicated one. Um, there are definitely a lot of local presence there. There is concerns, there is upset, there are a lot of questions. There was a gap of information. So when, when people started to move in, misinformation started to spread. Mm. People understandably got quite upset when they kind of felt, heard things that were sometimes quite extreme things about what was planned for the area. Um, I think as more information, more factual information is spreading, I think some people are... Um, their concerns come back to, OK, well, what does this mean for our community? How mm -hmm. are we going to respond? Um, and that is the question on people's minds at the moment. There are others that are more extreme viewpoints. A lot of external influence as well that has come into the area in order to try to drum up quite an extremist right. idea and response. And lucky, as someone who came here as an asylum seeker, mm -hmm. what do you think when you see those protests? Do you understand the concern of people who have gathered... Um, or, or is it outright racism as you see it? Well, I don't understand the, the concerns that people are raising. Uh, our, our point of view is that people who are there 
are people that came here to seek protection, are people that came here because of the problems that they had from their countries. And for the locals to direct their anger towards the people, it's, it's something that is just unfortunate. And it scares the people that are there. I've been there and I'm speaking to some people that are, are, are scared of coming out when there are people that are outside there. What, what are they saying to you? Well, they are saying that uh, they have to stay in their rooms because they are scared to come out when there are people that are shouting outside there and calling them names and taking videos of them as they, as they are going out. So people are scared. Uh, and, and it's something that is, is not supposed to happen, you know? Mm. And it's not an isolated kind of incident. We have seen this in the past where some centers have, have, have been bent because of the people not wanting Mm -hmm. uh, uh, people who are coming from from uh, yeah, it's uh, beyond as, as Dublin. Foreigners. We we have seen yeah. we have seen opposition um, in in other areas um, right around the country. Um, John Lee, on this, um, it's really come to a head now, hasn't it? We had two protests over the weekend, another protest that was planned for tonight, and now suspended because Roger O'Gorman intervened at this point. So so what's happening now? Because we did have Leo Radker coming out saying, you know, people have a right have a right to live there. Um, no one gets to have a veto on who lives in a particular community. Uh, I think the next step is that Roderick O'Gorman and um, Minister for Finance, uh, Pascal Donoghue, will meet um, local people and, and we would hope that the, um, some of the people who've sought asylum in the area as well and discuss their concerns that Lucky has outlined here. And we, we move from there. But they, um, Pascal Donoghue, it should be pointed out, is a, a TD for the for the constituency mm. of Dublin Centre, which Marie also represents. Um, but they are the government. And I would like to think, you know, that, that I've lived in Ireland for most of my life. I've been abroad as well. And um, we are very cognizant of the difficulties of people who seek not only asylum, but immigrate. We were, we're a nation of immigrants ourselves. And this is a product of a lack of housing for everyone in Ireland. And... We had reporters down at the um, protest on Monday night I was in helping edit the paper and some of the placards that we had, we lay out the photographs that we used for the paper, were local people protesting about their own housing. And there's a nuanced, as um, we've been told, a mix of people there, but they were saying that people are being housed here, okay, that's fair enough, but our housing is not adequate. Mm -hmm. um, one placard we had said, you know, we've, we've three generations living in a two-bedroom house. So this is... The government's failure to accommodate not only their own population with a, a, a collapsing housing system, yeah. but, uh, but the also time, people who are seeking the assistance of the state. But at the same time with that, the people are being housed in a former office building. Like this, this is not a, an ideal housing situation. We're not moving into, you know, a lovely new block of apartments or anything here, Barry. Mm. But to point to what is actually happening and how it's playing out. And we heard from Lucky there, saying there's people in the, the centre and there's people in that building, they're looking out and they're really scared, they're frightened. There are people videoing um, what they're doing, they're filming them, they've just come into the country. Um, what do you think of this situation? And is it as a result of a vacuum of information and a lack of consultation? Because that's what we keep hearing about. 
I think there are a number of factors. Firstly, I think Lucky is, is what he's saying is absolutely understandable. If you've come to a foreign country, particularly fleeing a situation that is untenable for you, you then come to the country and you find this level of intimidation. It's unacceptable and you can certainly see why it would upset and, and worry people. I think there's a number of factors coming to it and I, I appreciate what Janet said as well because it's obvious that there are people who have come in from outside the area and I've no doubt that there is a coordination uh, from certain people who want to project a political agenda on that that is, I think, not something that most Irish people believe in. I think most Irish people have been very welcoming to people from all countries who've come here. Information is an issue and I think there, there definitely wasn't enough information provided to residents which allowed the kind of misinformation and the, the information gap to arrive. Okay, there we to, did to hear Roger Gorman saying, you know, in, in instances like this, people seeking emergency shelter flying into the country, we actually don't have time in all mm. cases, to consult with communities. Yeah, and, and I think what the Tornish said this morning, I was standing next to him in Dunleary when he said it, that you, you don't have a veto any more than I have a veto and it's the so person lives in next door to me. So does that mean consultation, all very well, no, but you know what? Consultation and information are different, first of all. I think what's information the, should be there. When you don't inform people di- about it. What's the difference? Well, consultation suggests, well, first of all, consultation is seeking people's views. Information is telling them what's happening. Seeking views is also important, but it doesn't connote a veto on those people any more than I can say somebody can't move into the house next door to me when it's sold or something like that. But information is really important because... So how do you inform people? Is that by the way of leaflets? That's one way. A a public meeting, um, there's emails, there's residence groups, there's lots of ways of doing it. But when you don't tell people what's happening, somebody else comes in and fills the vacuum with incorrect information. But whose fault is that? Like, is that a mistake? Would you you say government put their hands up? Well, Roderick Gorman said that too. But I mean, of course, it's the people who are putting the housing in place or the accommodation in place who are responsible for making sure that that's there, whether it's Who's a department that? or another agency. It depends It depends on which situation okay. you're talking about. But the more information that's there, the less scope you give for allowing mm-hmm. other elements, hard right elements and other people who want to cause trouble to come in and tell people something that isn't Yeah, happening. it's interesting as well, isn't it, Marie? I suppose what, you know, government and state bodies will promote. If there's new housing development, everyone knows everything about it. But if we have a, a case where there are asylum seekers moving into a community, you know, the less said, maybe the better in this instance. Yeah, and, and, and look, and I think it's important to first say, and again, like, you know, there's a lot of people in East Wall at the moment that are very hurt that the name of their area that they love and have pride in has been dragged through the mud and being depicted as being anti-immigrant and, 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 and racist when it couldn't be further from the truth. And of course, there's, there's never an excuse for any protest that's intim- intended to intimidate and, 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 and demean and, and make people feel threatened. But I think the other side of this is about respect for communities as well. And, and, and obviously the information came very late in the day and absolutely the minister made com- you know, phone calls to all public representatives in the area last Friday and, and held a briefing. But that was very late in the day. And I think the other you know, thing it's important to say here is that in the inner city at this point in time, like it's under enormous strain. We have a shocking uh, shortage of services in health, in education, in early years. In the earlier sector alone, we know one in four kids in the inner city cannot access a free preschool so, Marie- so the point is, I made the appeal to the minister last Friday. I was like, okay, that's that, that, like these are vulnerable people. They need to be housed. There's 20 of these people in tents in Athlone at the moment that are, be, are that were in tents up to last week in Athlone that were being moved into the old ESB building. So it's absolutely right that we we, we, we put that building to use. Yes. But we need to put the supports in place. And so there's a real question now for government about how it steps up and ensures that in, in, in an area which is already like, you know, under enormous strain, as I say, that, that, that the supports are put in place for those families, for those individuals. We have to look at the right to work at the moment an asylum seeker has to wait so six months. So therefore, do 
individuals, two communities have a right to come out and say, yes, look, there are 100 people now being housed in our community, but we're really worried about schools, about childcare, about getting to see our GP and the strain that it's putting on our community. Are they legitimate ways to protest? And should there be a right then, do you think, for people to protest about these matters? Well, I think the thing is it shouldn't have ever got to a protest to start with, right? The whole point is that you actually engage with the community, you say this is happening and these are the services we're actually going to put in place to try and reassure people. Like the key thing, okay. like as I said at the start, okay. there's no excuse All for right. intimidating protest. But the thing is that the, the area is under enormous strain and we have to okay. recognise that the government cannot just, like is it, ignore those facts on the ground. Okay, um, Lucky, would you agree with that? That, um, that when it comes to, I suppose, where migrants stay, despite requiring emergency shelter, that the community they're staying in need to know as much as possible and the services need to be there for the incoming community and the people coming in, as well as people who are already there. Well, um, as far as the community, uh, people are talking about the, the consultation and the information. Uh, Remember that people are, are, are vulnerable people mm. and uh, we need not to forget that. Yeah. And when we show hostility towards the people and we are barking at the wrong tree, and it's important for people to understand that in whatever actions that they, they need to do, services that they are talking about is just a, a, a kind of way to legitimize what they are the, the, the protests, and that is not the issue. It's not the issue. Mm -hmm. People need also to, to integrate. That communication that we are talking about, it's also what is it that the community can do to, integ to integrate with the, with the new people that are coming in, the, in their communities. Mm -hmm. And they are not a threat. People are, are being called that they don't know where they, they, they are coming from, they have not been vetted. What's that going to do with the services that people that people uh, uh, are complaining about? Yeah, I'm just wondering on the consultation and process, uh, Janet. Say there is to be a discussion because that's been one of the things that, that, that this has happened, and we didn't know about it. And you find out on Friday night, but the, and then it trickles down to people in the area. Um, do you think that would actually mean more of a pushback from people that if there is that consultation opportunity? There's also going to be people who say, you know what, actually, no, um, there aren't the systems in place and we will um, feel the pressure here. And we already have huge housing issue and we already have, you know, all, all, all the gripes that people have right now. Um, but that's going to actually mean that there's going to be further delays in providing this emergency accommodation. Um, again, I would agree that I think there, we need to be careful about the idea of consultation. What are we actually asking people? Are we asking people permission to, to open these accommodation centres? At the moment, 46,000 people have come from Ukraine and been accommodated by the state this year. 13,000 have come through the international protection uh, system as well. That is enormous numbers of people who have a right to come here. And when they do come here, we have a responsibility to accommodate them. So if you are talking about going through a consultation process every single time, there is a strong risk you will not get permission mm -hmm. from communities to open centres. So we, do, we don't really have that option. Yeah. We do have an obligation to provide information. And I think when those centres are open, that is when communities need to work in solidarity and cooperation with those in the, in, 
vulnerable positions, indirect provision and other situations to put the pressure back yeah, in the government and I'm say just we think, need those services. I'm just thinking as well, John, like how this is playing out. As Lucky has said, it's not just an issue that we've seen in East Wall in Dublin. But briefly, you know, we have seen it. We have seen it in Donegal. We have seen it in Kildare. We have seen the burning down of, of hotels and accommodation. Um, and, and is it something that the government can get a handle on? Well, we, we, we often hear of fears in government about social unrest, um, you know, the, when, the, when, the, when the, the energy crisis hit. This, this, again, I say it, is a manifestation mm. of, of unrest about people's lack of ad, uh, access to adequate housing and their fears of, the, of, the, of it not being solved next year. OK, we'll have to see how that meeting um, goes. We'll have to leave it there. That is it from the panel. My thanks to all of our guests tonight. And um, from us, good night. Take care. <laughs>